Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 306. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Trifecta special number 26 this week. Three different flash pieces by three different authors, all related by some theme. This trifecta, it's a bizarro tea party. We bring you three stories about tea and snacks. Sort of. We're going to start things off with a story called Spiders by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam. Bonnie lives in Denton, Texas, with her partner and two literarily named cats, Gimli and Don Quixote. Her works appeared or as forthcoming in Clark's World, Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, and Goblin Fruit, and she reviews short fiction on her blog, Short Story Review. Visit her website at bonniejoestufflebeam.com. The story is read to you by Hugh O'Donnell. Hugh is a writer and podcaster living in western New York. He's the host and editor of The Way of the Buffalo, a literary podcast featuring short fiction and interviews, and you really ought to check it out. It's kind of a kindred spirit to the Drabblecast. Find Hugh's books and blogging at hughjodonnell.wordpress.com. So without further ado, we bring you Spiders by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam. About three years ago, spiders took over my car. It's an old car, one of the last of its kind. I'm one of the last of my kind, too. Name's Sebastian. My mom really dug old-fashioned names. Turns out, the name's a good fit. I'm 26, and I've never kissed a girl. It never felt right. And then, with the damn spiders in my car, it got hard to go on dates. I tried to toss the spiders out, but there were always a few strays left. At night, they multiplied, weaving webs from the e-brake to the passenger side door. When I climbed into my car in the morning, I hacked through their white silk with scissors. Even then, I had trouble seeing out the windshield. They loved the sun. I never knew what they ate in there, though I had my suspicions. I found spider arms on the leather seats and any peppermints I left on the dash vanished from their wrappers by morning. Then, of course, there were the bites I found up and down my legs. When I say that spiders took over my car, I don't mean they just lived there. Throughout the course of a week, they burrowed down into the stereo so that it didn't play music anymore. Instead, it hummed, then emitted a noise like nothing I'd ever heard, a high-pitched wail followed by the tapping of tiny feet. Each morning after I found more spiders. They could have been getting in through the cracks, through the grill, through the air vents. When I pressed my foot to the pedal, spiders quaked and scattered. They gathered on the dash and around the wheel. They worked their legs. The car moved. Two weeks after the first one showed up, I realized they might be a blessing. I ran out of gas, but the car still went. So I encouraged them. I bought big bags of peppermints and dumped them on the seats. I left the windows cracked so that they could get some air. If more decided that my car was a place to call home, so be it. Only, I overdid it. One week after I bought the mints, there were too many of them. They couldn't breathe, and when I held up my magnifying glass, I could see their little spider bodies pant. Leaning down, I heard them gasp for air. 
so I bottled a few in an old soda bottle and screwed the lid back on. I didn't know what to do with the bottle right at first. Finally, I posted an ad on Craigslist. Energy efficient gas replacement. I sold it. I sold 10, 20, 300 bottles in the span of a month. The spiders were okay with it. They didn't like leaving their families, but they didn't mind as long as they could eat. I started sleeping in my car. Sure, I have a nice house with a comfy bed, but I found I could no longer sleep on a mattress, where the whole night I felt a phantom itch. Within another month, I'd opened spider stations. It was easy to get a loan. In exchange for three jars of spiders, the banker signed my paperwork and expedited my case. The first station was right next to the highway. The next one was closer to my house, on a less peopled road, but the customers made it a point to come. They pulled up, and I filled their cars with spiders from a nozzle that used to hold gasoline. When I held down the lever, spiders swarmed through the tube and scurried into the gas tank. After the first door opened, it was just a matter of six weeks until everyone in town was using the spiders. I quit my job working retail and opened a chain of stations. I went global in a year. Eight months from the time I opened my first station overseas, every single car ran on spiders. The fuel companies hated me. Exxon sent an assassin, but the spiders found him first. I was living in my car 24-7 by then, so when the assassin plunged through the window with a hammer, spiders crawled over his body until he was just a black mess of struggling limbs. I thought my success with the spider stations might speed up the process of finding a girl. Nearly every night, I took at least one woman out to dinner, but they were all wrong for me. They cursed too much, or they ate too little, or they didn't look at me the right way. I knew it wasn't the bites. By that point, everyone's bodies were covered in them. Even the girls I took out waltz littered their skin like tattoos. People walked around with pasty faces, mouths open. The houses grew thick with webs, but no one cared. People all slept in their cars. When they snored, the spiders crawled into their mouths. They nested in their stomach, ate the foods that came down. They have a taste for strawberry cupcakes and chocolate, so that's what went first in the grocery stores. The spiders don't like vegetables, so vegetables rotted in their bins. Crops died. Flies swarmed. The spiders nabbed them, ate their wings like potato chips. As for me, after two years I've gone out of business. The spiders don't need me anymore, and my body's not all it used to be, overexposed. My skin is all red holes. Can't really walk anymore. I can breathe, but not well. I don't eat much of anything, just peppermints and candy bars. The spiders can find better food elsewhere, so they've mostly left. I sit in my car all day and watch what's left of them. With nothing left to conquer, the spiders seem bored, restless. Their webs are erratic, the string spreading out every which way like a girl's hair in a severe wind. I've actually never seen a girl's hair like that. I've only had spiders. The sink of their teeth. Jaws strong for their size. The brush of furry legs. The kiss.
Our next story is called Tea Killer, coming to us from 27-year-old Hungarian writer Zoltán Nagy. Zoltán writes surreal short fiction and has several publications to date. His first book, a novel titled Masek Kaptar Varasabal, which I'm sure I just mutilated, my apologies to the nation of Hungary, translates to Tales from Hive City and was published in 2010. He's the editor of Catapult Kortars Alkatai Oldal. You're killing me, Zoltán. A site that focuses on neo-avant-garde and post-modern literature, abstract paintings, and electronic, mostly experimental music. You'll find a link in our show notes. So on we go. We bring you Tea Killer by Zoltán Nagy. While sipping my tea in the morning, I find a small two-inch-long naked female corpse on the bottom of the cup. Her white skin fades into the white porcelain. Tiny gobs of tea leaves cover her round breasts. I immediately slap the cup down and snick across to the phone to call the police. I forget all about checking if she's really dead. Of course, how could I give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation otherwise? Her body's about the size of a matchstick. I walk in circles, up and down the kitchen, when the doorbell finally rings. Two detectives arrive, eyeing me suspiciously. I let them in and point at my table. They hem and haw while examining the body in the cup. You, uh, you know her? The older one asks. I tell him I've never seen this woman in my life. Did she drown? I ask. The autopsy will soon tell, answers the detective, taking out his camera and taking pictures of the crime scene. The younger one asks for nail scissors and locks himself in my bathroom with the small corpse. I nervously offer the other detective some tea. You know, I once knew a fortune teller who could read the future from these tea leaves, he yarns, slurping at his hot drink. It sounded crazy to me, till the newspaper wrote the man found the winning lottery numbers in his cup. And you know what? He's a rich man now. Yeah, I would have preferred the lottery numbers too, I admit, and the detective begins to laugh. His partner steps out from the bathroom with some fresh bloodstains on his shirt. He's holding a plastic bag with the body of the poor girl and the dirty nail scissors I'd given him. He's handing them to me, but I don't reach for them, so he just puts them on the table. Well, she drowned for sure, murmurs the man. The other detective nods and puts on his hat. So this was yesterday. Since then, a yellow police line has cordoned off my kitchen table. They tell me I can't tear it until the investigation is over, and it would be better if I wouldn't do any cleaning in the kitchen. When I woke this morning, I found that I didn't have the strength to make any tea. I just couldn't get rid of the image of that dead girl laying at the bottom of the cup. Every time I thought about it, the nausea began to squeeze my stomach. So I decided to visit the bar at the corner instead, and just ordered a cup of black tea there. As the waitress arrived, somehow she looked very familiar, this pretty girl placing the steaming tea down on the table with a strange smile on her face. It is so rare, you know, a man ordering tea. Men usually want coffee, she prattles on, and finally I do recognize her. Of course I'd seen this woman before, yesterday, lying in the bottom of a cup. 
The blood drains from my face, and I react to the situation in the dumbest possible way. I stand, put on my coat, and run from the place without a word. At home, an open door greets me. Three men sit in my kitchen with steaming cups in their hands. Two I recognize immediately, the detectives, their back, but this time they brought along an old-fashioned guy with a wig, some kind of judge, I guess. Well, I've got some bad news, begins the older detective with a strange and somehow evil grin on his face. It looks like the girl was drowned by someone else. The microscopic pictures revealed signs of a struggle on the body. I collapse into a chair and try to say something, but I'm breathing heavily now. Only a few words escape my mouth. They are fluttering in the room, getting lost in the tea's steam. In the bar, the girl... Black tea. The lottery numbers. This, of course, doesn't make any sense. I hope you understand that we have so many cases that we can't allow ourselves to sit on any one case for too long, the policeman tells me with a sharp, unsparing voice, tapping the judge's shoulders. So we, uh, we gotta speed things up here a bit, start your trial. Well, now. This is madness. I want to rail against this ridiculous treatment, but I know that any resistance would be useless. So instead, I give the judge a sincere look of appeal as he begins swirling the teacup between his fingers, trying to read out a verdict from the tea leaves waltzing within. The kitchen is dead silent. Everyone gazes at the judge's shaky gray hand, at the cup in his clenched fingers each of us hoping to glimpse the blackness inside, where it seemingly never stops swirling. wrap up this trifecta with a story called Tea Baby by Spike Marlowe. Spike Marlowe is a San Francisco busker, superheroine, and author. Her first bizarro book, Placento of Love, is currently available as part of the 2011-2012 new bizarro author series from Eraserhead Press. She keeps an advice column for people in paranormal romances at tumblr.com forward slash blog forward slash have a paranormal romance. And her blog can be found at spikemarlowe.wordpress.com. The story is read to you by the lovely Lauren Harris. Lauren's a fantasy author and writer of the Mill Road Academy Exorcists novella series. She's the co-creator of 2012 Parsec finalist Pendragon Variety, a genre writing podcast where she's better known as Scribe. Find them at pendragonvariety.com. So, hope you don't have the volume up too loud. Would hate to wake up the little one. We bring you Tea Baby by Spike Marlowe. For a year before Baby was made, Papa drank only black tea to balance out his glaring whiteness. For 40 weeks after Baby was made, Mama drank only white tea to mix up in her insides and balance out her brilliant blackness. Mama and Papa dream of making a baby together almost as soon as they'd met. 
even though Mama's breasts were just sprouted, tiny teacup-sized lumps, and Papa's chin hadn't come to terms with its newly sprouted peach fuzz. The years passed. Mama mastered carving wood after learning on bars of ivory soap, and Papa studied Bobby Fisher's favorite movies. They both learned how to properly pour a cup of tea, and that you don't mix milk and lemon, or take both sugar and honey. And they kept their dream alive. They'd make a big baby, a beautiful baby, a glorious combination of what made Papa Papa and Mama Mama. As soon as baby was made, the moment Papa's seed hit Mama's egg, Mama blossomed and grew. Her belly, her hips, her thighs and breasts. Her skin grew brighter and brighter. At month six, she glowed so hard she blew out all the lights in her and Papa's bedroom. Her smile was brighter. All she had to do was think about her baby and, oh, how she would grin and rub her massive belly and drink her white tea. When it came time for baby to be born, the doctor wanted to cut him from Mama, worried that he'd be too big to birth. But Mama said no. Her baby would flow from her as naturally as he was put there. And so it was. Mama felt pulsing, and she screamed from pain. But baby flowed from between her legs, rolling out into the world as only baby could. One black and white checkered beautiful baby, as big as Mama and Papa's queen-sized bed twice over, with a tiny head at the top of the board, one arm on each side, and two feet at the bottom. Of course, Mama and Papa played with baby. Mama pulled out the black and white chess pieces she'd carved while carrying baby, and she and Papa placed their pieces on baby's body. Even to this day, Mama and Papa play chess with baby. Mama always plays white, because, as Papa says, ladies always go first. Besides, he loves to see the beautiful contrast of the white pieces against her black skin. And she loves to see the black against his white skin. Baby just loves the contrast. And while Mama and Papa play, Mama sips black and white tea with ginseng and honey from dainty teacups. The tea flows through Mama's body and out through her nipples into Baby's mouth. Black tea to keep Baby's black squares black. White tea to keep his white squares white. Ginseng to keep him stimulated and honey to keep him sweet. Because, as Mama says, it's all about balance in all things. Tea, chess, and creating babies. was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. Now I've got the munchies. Is it Starbucks that has the peppermint spider lattes? It's festive, you know? Three stories for the ever-low price of free, huh? Pretty good deal. But then there are still some awesome folks out there like our kick-ass donor of the week this week who give generously anyway. Our kick-ass donor of the week? Court Jensen. 
Frankenstein chicken. We asked Court to tell us a little about himself, and he wrote us back with a hundred-word drabble. Court Jensen? Yeah, I know him. Nice guy. Works down at the fish farm. Wouldn't hurt a fly. He keeps to himself, mostly. Yes, good with kids. A quiet and polite young man. And that kid of his never had a chance, did she? I mean, both him and his wife having that red hair and all. Poor thing. I don't know, he's just a guy, you know? Never went anywhere without that MP3 player of his. I heard wild beasts follow him and lick his hands. And one day he just up and subscribed to the Drabblecast. Who would have guessed? Thanks, Court. We really appreciate the support. You folks at home, remember that Drabblecast runs off the support of big-hearted weirdos like Court to pay authors for their work and all our other costs. Consider making a donation to the Drabblecast if you've got the means. It goes a long way. Just hit up drabblecast.org and click on the support options. We really appreciate it. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week. For the second week in a row, newcomer to the forums, K. Billy, with this one. Kevin sat, nearing tears again, with this latest love letter to Raquel. He just could not find a cue to cut from the papers. Very nice. Each week, of course, we pick a 100-character story from the TwitFix section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, post it in our Twitter feed at the Drabblecast, and run it on the show. Anyone can write a 100-character story. Give it a shot. You might be next week's winner. Alrighty, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Tell a friend about us. Write us a review on iTunes. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Gino Moretto. Gino lives in Wellington, New Zealand's glorious capital, and is a husband, father, teacher, and artist. He's currently attempting to complete the Balls of Steel 100 Drawing Challenge. You can follow his progress and other art adventures at his blog, Death From Above. Just follow the links in our show notes. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nikki Drayden, our submissions editor Nathan Lee, art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, the spiders don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm.